Hello, Stephen. Hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Good. Uh, enjoying the uh, pre-holiday sprint? Uh, well, yeah, it's kind of sneaking up on me here. You know, the snow kind of uh, put me in mind of it. I, w- I actually went out and got a tree uh, last week and uh, everyone was going on and on about there being a tree shortage. And now they're talking about there being a turkey shortage and a booze shortage. And it's like, oh, come on, just 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 relax. I got my tree. There are lots of trees. It was a good price. It's up in the, up in the front uh, in the front hall. And it's uh, making my eyes run because we always get a, you know, obviously a, 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 a real tree. Uh, even though, you know, it makes, makes my eyes run, my nose run, uh, makes me sneeze and cough. But, uh, you know, it's the spirit of the time. <laughs> <laughs> You're a real trooper. <laughs> oh, you know, and I went and looked, I, I think I got a flyer from one of those fancy places and they had artificial trees and I, and I just, about, I just about fell off my chair. One for $1,500. Um, it was well, on sale for, for $999. So, you know, you save $501, but. Okay. Now as someone who doesn't know, what is an average, what does a tree cost you every year? uh 49 bucks okay so it would take a considerable number of years yeah, you got to amortize that tree over a lot of years in order yeah, to, yeah. to make it now there are a lot of cheaper ones and then you know in fairness but you know they 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 look like cheaper ones uh you know it's funny i, ha- I used to have my my law office uh, down on bay street and i was in uh, law chambers with uh, three other uh, three other partners and uh two of them were very nice jewish ladies uh who who remain friends and every year at the office, they, they like first of December, they'd be like, we got to get out the Christmas tree. And I don't even know where the Christmas tree came from because, you know, I, I sure didn't buy it. But it, they, they got so excited about the Christmas tree. I was like, you know what? I got one at home. Knock yourselves out. You can decorate it all you like. But it was my Jewish partners who, who loved the tradition of the Christmas tree. And, you know, we uh, we uh, notional Christians were like, yeah, that's 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 great. <laughs> yeah, well, I uh, I'm one of those people that loves Christmas music. <laughs> What's so, not to love? It, there's a couple songs that I do not like, but the the rest of them, I very much like the festivity. I mean, for Jews, we understand Christmas. It's a, a holiday where family gets together and you eat together, and you know there, there's a, there's a, a bond and, and, a, and a tradition and so on. So I think most people who have holidays that center on families and tradition and and eating, which is I think everybody outside of atheists. Um, we can all relate to that. I uh, I happen to uh, very much enjoy the Christmas holiday, and and I'm always sad when it's over. Yeah, well, it's a great season. It's a great holiday, and you know, all of the all of the traditions. You know, they, some people you know it's, it, it make it uh, very much a religious experience, but uh, for a lot of people, it's really about uh, about just being nice to each other. As uh, as uh, Bill Murray said in Scrooge, it's the one time a year when we become the people we always hoped we would be, and uh, and you know for the other eleven months we're not. But uh, you know, it's something to aspire to. <laughs> And uh, we will aspire to keeping people interested in what we're talking about today. And one of the things we want to talk about is the first, um, at least to me, reported case of a person in Quebec being demoted from their job, reassigned is what they said, a teacher, elementary school teacher, uh, because she's wearing a hijab in violation of the uh, province's secular protection law or whatever they're calling it, uh, the one that prohibits people in government employ who are in positions of authority from having any religious iconography or clothing or anything of that nature. That includes uh, hijabs, that includes uh, yarmulkes, um, it includes anything that uh, is 
you know, overtly religious. So she has been reassigned. They didn't say where to or what, at least not in the article I read. But now this is sort of the, the, the federal politicians uh, and the Trudeau government have so far really tap danced around this issue. And I think this has the potential to put it back in the spotlight and put pressure on the Trudeau government to either uh, fish or cut bait. It, you know, it, you, can't, you can say all you want that, you know, we're in September, Trudeau said that they're, they're looking at, they're examining being involved or, or taking a position on this or challenging it because it is a federal government's job to protect the rights of all citizens. Um, Aaron O'Toole, uh, I don't know why he's trying to curry favor in Quebec. He's got no hope there, but uh, said he doesn't, he doesn't support the law, but he respects the uh, competence and uh, decisions of the uh, provincial governments. Uh, I th this is, a, a, I think, a law. And the interesting thing is that the school board in Quebec, which reassigned this teacher, uh, is, is a school board that came out very strongly against this law. And they say they haven't changed their position, but they have to follow the provincial guidelines because they are, you know, provincially funded provincial organization. So I'm wondering if this is going to be the flashpoint that gets people to say, okay, it's time to stop dancing around this and time to start addressing this, which flies in the face of so many Canadian values. Um, what do you think? You know, I, you know, absolutely. I mean, it's an egregious violation of people's uh, rights for no appreciable purpose. I mean, I, I'm not sure what the problem is that they thought they were trying to address. I mean, the you know, bill, Quebec's Bill 21 was, you know, bans employees, um, um, public employees, in position deemed to be in positions of authority, um, it, it, pro it prohibits them from wearing uh, religious symbols on the job. Now, I mean, when they move a teacher, uh, you know, a teacher in a position of authority, let's say they've moved her somewhere else, uh, obviously somewhere where she's not in a position of authority. But the problem with Bill 21 is the very first thing that the Quebec government did was included in Bill 21 uh, when they, uh, I think they they withdrew it, then they they they. They, they brought it back again. And when they brought it back again, they brought it back with a notwithstanding clause. So as, as people you know, who follow me on Twitter, I got taught to go on and on length about the charter and notwithstanding clause is the provincial governments have the right to invoke the notwithstanding clause that say, doesn't matter what the charter says. Um, this law will stand for at least five years, and then it has to be renewed by the provincial legislatures. So they can violate the charter at certain sections of the charter. And uh, the religious freedoms is one of those sections that they can violate um, by invoking the notwithstanding clause. So the federal government is in a really tough position because their hands are tied because the notwithstanding clause is an absolute bar to anyone taking them to court uh, over charter violations. It's actually an acknowledgement that this violates the charter. And you know what, we don't care. And there's nothing you can do about it. So, because we invoke the notwithstanding clause. So the federal government, everyone's going like Trudeau, you should do something about it. And he's like, what? Um, they not invoke the notwithstanding clause, which means the courts have no jurisdiction over overturning it or finding that it's a breach of, of someone's uh, charter rights. So th there, you know, there's a novel argument that's being made that there, although the notwithstanding clause is limited to certain rights in the charter, 
and that there's certain other rights that it's not uh, that, that it doesn't apply to. And they're saying like, well, it, it violates all these really important obvious rights, but maybe there's this other right that we can shoehorn it into. Um, you know, if, if you want to look it up, there's a long, dull legal explanation of, of, of the kinds of, uh, of rights that are and aren't uh, covered by the notwithstanding clause. But it strikes me that that's a loser of an argument that, uh, you know, you can't do an end run around it as much as everyone would love to, because Bill 21 is clearly a, a law that uh, that is prejudicial and violates people's rights. But I think that the, the trying to save it by saying, well, it's not the obvious right that it is uh, violating. It's this other right that you can't waive using the notwithstanding clause. I don't think that's going to fly. There is a court challenge that's going on in Quebec about that right now. And you know, we'll see how that works. Um, but you know, the uh, Quebec government has, has taken it out of the jurisdiction of, of the courts and, and the federal government for the most part. So yeah, it's a terrible law, which I, you know, for, for no particular purpose, I'm not sure, you know, if I, if I go to uh, motor vehicles and to uh, renew my license and someone is wearing, uh, you know, a big gory crucifix around their neck, or they're wearing a kippa or uh, a, a turban, um, I'm not sure that means to me I'm going to get different or worse service, or I'm going to feel intimidated because somebody who has faith is 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 uh, is serving me and may serve me differently for some reason, you know. Somebody who's wearing a, you know, a hijab is going to treat someone wearing a kippa who comes in as a customer differently. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of remedies for that kind of thing already uh, under you know various human rights legislation and all the rest. But I don't think that happens a lot. Maybe I live in, you know, people have accused me of living in a fantasy world. Um, but and discrimination certainly exists. But public servants, um, you know, I can't speak for all of Quebec, but, uh, you know, pub public servants are public servants and they do their jobs as well as public servants do anywhere. And I don't think religious you know, belief motivates the level of service that they give people or that people should feel intimidated by people in positions of authority who happen to have, uh, you know, wear their religion literally on their sleeve. The, um, this is very much a law, a, a, a solution in search of a problem. It, they're, they're, this, this business, and when has Quebec realistically ever been under the threat of any kind of religious takeover of society. There doesn't appear to be any theocratic forces that are working against secular forces in Quebec. So I understand putting in laws when there's clearly a problem. Laws should be brought in to address problems. There's no problem here. The problem, as I see it, is that there may be some people who don't want to go in and see people wearing a turban or a kippah because they're bigots. Um, well, yeah, exactly. I mean, and this is part of, you know, you know, everyone seems to to know and, and not wanting to say, you know, too loudly that, you know, this is a, a, um, a, a racist policy by the Quebec government specifically aimed at Muslims. Um, particularly the Muslim women who are wearing the hijab or, or, or chador or, or something as part of their religious belief who, who work for the government. And it's a very, very small number of people. I, I, mean, I remember when it first uh, broke in the news, I mean, they gave the numbers and it's a handful of people who are public servants who wear, you know, um, who, who wear um, um, 
the uh, uh, yeah, whether it's a, a Shador or uh, or Niqab. Um, it, it's such a small number of people. It's the same sort of thing when uh, the uh, citizenship courts under uh, Harper said that uh, you know you couldn't take the oath to Canada while you were wearing a, um, a Shador. Uh, it, it was a thinly thinly disguised, if not disguised at all, um, dog whistle racist uh, comment. And Quebec is worried about Muslim immigration, uh, even though they control a lot of their own immigration, they worry about Muslims having much of a profile in Quebec society. And I think at the same time, you know, the Jewish uh, uh, community is uh, you know, predominantly based in, it, it's, it's small, but uh, influential, prominently based in Montreal. And you know, they, they generally vote liberal. Uh, they generally don't vote with the separatists. And so it's another minority they can afford to burn uh, because they're not, uh, you know, they're not getting their support anyway. But at the same time, they're reinforcing sort of the rural bigoted uh, um, Quebec who are, who are prepared not to wear their crucifixes to work uh, or, you know, tuck them into their uh, tuck them into their shirt because it's a small price to pay to to eradicate the, you know, the the uh, creeping Islamification of Quebec as they see it. Yeah, it's the hysteria amongst some uh, corners of society who see Sharia law around, you know, every corner. Uh, it's perplexing to me. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any uh, movement to, to have our secular systems uh, adopt elements of Sharia law. And yet you'll hear people screaming about how they're trying to, they, it's always they, um, are trying to push Sharia law into, into our uh, legal code. And that's just, that doesn't have, I mean, in Ontario, for many years, there was an alternate uh, dispute uh, res resolution mechanism for people who were Jewish. Um, they could go to a Jewish court called the Beit Din, which is a traditional um, oh. uh, traditional court, and they could got to get a get. <laughs> yeah, if you want to get a Jewish divorce, um, but you could take any dispute there, and you both parties signed an agreement that they would abide by the decision of the Beit Din, and that was rec that decision was recognized by Ontario. Yeah, it, um, and, and anyone can do that. You know, you can you can agree to submit to binding arbitration. You know, most people think of that in terms of unions and all the rest. But arbitration, uh, you, know, you know, our courts would grind to a halt if people didn't agree to go to binding arbitration for all kinds of things. And they do that for family law. They do that for civil cases and all the rest. And basically, you go to a private court and people sign a contract that say, we're going to appoint somebody who we trust, who is knowledgeable in this area and will make a decision and we will agree to be bound by that decision. Uh, so there's nothing particularly nefarious about that. But, the, but, uh, but under Dalton McGinty, when there was cry, uh, demand from the uh, Muslim community that they get a similar court that supports Sharia law, uh, McGinty got rid of the bait din as well. He yeah. said, no, none of nobody's going to have this because they didn't want to they didn't want to have uh, a court that in any way received uh, not so much endorsement, but but. Uh, uh, respect or consideration from the provincial government that was hardcore Sharia law. So they just said nobody gets it. So, yeah. it, so we're not actually moving towards Islamification. We've, we've moved further away from it. Anytime that it, there's been a whiff of it, 
it's uh, we've taken steps to to stop that from from getting into our system. Yeah, and you know the the politicians have been particularly disappointing because, as you said, you know both uh, you know O'Toole absolutely uh, Trudeau has been uh, pussyfooting around it. I mean he's 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 condemned it uh, sort of lightly and uh, and and said you know we're going to see how the court cases uh, work out because there is a court case working its way through the system um, and whether the federal government joins in that or not makes no difference because the judge will rule you know, on the merits of it, regardless of who the parties are. So there is a challenge going on and the government, federal government is, is sort of watching that to see what happens. But, uh, you know, the politicians are clearly afraid of Quebec. Um, they're afraid of losing support in Quebec because this is, you know, reasonably popular in Quebec for all the wrong reasons and among all the wrong people. But, uh, you know, Trudeau and O'Toole and, and Singh all were avoiding the question or soft peddling it because it, it, they don't want to lose seats in Quebec. And this is seen very much as a nationalist issue in Quebec uh, because the whole purpose of this legislation, I would say, is because they don't feel that certain people are really Quebecers. Um, you know, if you are wearing a turban or a kippah or a hijab, you're not really and can never actually be a Quebecer because that is not what Quebec, you know, its distinct identity is about, as opposed to sort of the multicultural uh, reality that, that is the rest of Canada. Quebec is, has it's been struggling for, for decades against, uh, against the tide of, uh, of being a country that is populated by people from other countries. Um, and they're preserving their, their, their unique heritage and language um, and there are certain people who just don't fit that mold. And this is just another way of, of maintaining the, the pure Len, uh, um, the, the racial identity of, of, of Quebec culture. And, you yeah. know, and they were prepared to say, okay, well, you can't wear crosses too. Well, big deal. They did, they did finally take the cross down. There was a crucifix that uh, hung over the uh, speaker's chair in the, uh, in the Quebec Assemblée Nationale uh, for, for ages. And actually it, it was, only when someone pointed out that Bill 21 kind of makes that hypocritical, they tried first to say, oh, no, no, that's not a religious symbol. That's a cultural symbol. It's part of the culture of Quebec. And then everyone kind of looked at it and said, really, you're really going to try that one? And they went, all right, we'll take it down. So they, they were prepared to sacrifice that for the greater good, which is, you know, keeping Quebec for the Quebecers and not for people who uh, wear head coverings. Yeah, it's this also brings back to and we've discussed this in previous uh, programs, uh, you know, my view that the notwithstanding clauses is, a, is an absurdity. Um, you either are citizens in a country where you're guaranteed rights or you're not. And the notion that provinces can suspend certain civil rights, it just it, I, it strikes me as um, a compromise that maybe is worse than not having had the the constitution in the first place it seemed to we were doing okay under the bna um but this notwithstanding clause is a terrible terrible compromise and it allows for it allows for for an unequal treatment of citizens across the country their citizens should have the same rights under the law the same civil rights under the law no matter where you are in the country and notwithstanding clause doesn't make that a guarantee. And that's why I think it, it's a travesty. 
Yeah, it is. And, it, you know, it, unfortunately, it was a deal with the devil that they made. And we've talked uh, before about how the idea was that the notwithstanding clause was going to be so repugnant to the public that any government that used it was going to be thrown on its, on its ear for not respecting human rights. And for a long time, it really was because, you know, aside from Quebec, that uh, when they were in, in full uh, PQ uh, mode right after the, uh, the, the Constitution was repatriated and they and they hated it and they hated the charter that they inserted it in every single law that they passed, whether or not it had anything to do with civil rights. Um, you know, Quebec has invoked it a number of times, uh, but it's been really rarely invoked in other provinces. It's been threatened a few times. And Ontario broke, you know, um, famously just as in, in the last 12 months um, over a, a piece of legislation that was going to be struck down. Uh, and uh, they, they, they put it in and Ford used it for the first time. And uh, it was sort of greeted with, eh, that's too bad. But, you know, aside from legal scholars, it was a bit of a yawn. So the whole idea that it is, it is so repugnant to, to voters uh, it, to, as the safeguard for it not being used has gone out the window because the voters seem not to care anymore. Yeah. And now we're stuck with it and people are starting to use it for all kinds of uh, you know, inappropriate uh, denials of rights of people for no good reason. Well, you know, once a government uses it once, I mean, the, the big um, decision is to use it the first time. Every time after that, it becomes a little bit easier. Yeah. Uh, yep. So that's what's going on in Quebec. I'll be interested to see if any of these court challenges are successful. I suspect not. Uh, but we will keep an eye on that story. Another story that's interesting, was interesting to me, I just read before we reported, is that there were three Starbucks locations in Buffalo, New York, that had votes to decide on whether or not to unionize. And uh, two said no, but one said yes. This is the first Starbucks location anywhere in the US uh, that has voted for unionization. Now, where this goes now, I don't know. I also don't know how do you unionize one store and not another store when it's you've got a massive chain. I mean, do you understand that? Well, yeah. You know, each of them is uh, is independently owned. They're all franchises, so they are. They you know, even though they're branded the same way and they have franchise agreements with the parent company, they're all run as as individual uh, companies. So. Um, the, the one union doesn't, uh, the employees are employed by that one location. They're not employed by Starbucks, the, the you know, the, 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 the mega corporation, the relationship right. with the, of the, you know, the guy who serves you, your macchiato isn't with Seattle. It's with, uh, you know, Joe Blow, who, who bought the rights to the franchise on, on the corner across uh, the street from the other franchisee who has a Starbucks across the corner from him. Yeah, so It'll be interesting to see, does, do they actually unionize? Will it actually happen? Will this, there's already um, votes going to be happening in three other Buffalo locations and one in, uh, I forget which city in Arizona. It's, there's been talk about this for a while. There's, you know, the am, people talk about Amazon unionizing um, and the Amazon saying that, no, the best relationship is when they just deal directly with their staff which of course any corporation is going well, to say. Sure. <laughs> no, no, don't organize. We can, you know, we can, we can work something out with, you know, one guy at a time. Yeah. <laughs> it's not divide and conquer. No. Uh, and uh, I'm curious if, if this will spread further, because if it does, 
it shows a bit of a resuscitation in the United States of the union movement, which has been uh, denied oxygen for decades now. It has been shrinking and shrinking and shrinking in its strength. You've got states which are right to work states. Um, you know, there's uh, races to the bottom who can who will offer to do the job for the least amount of money. It's people getting down in the mud, fighting with each other over who can get to, who will do it cheapest and cut their own throats in doing so. Uh, the union, the labor movement has really been in recession for the, the last uh, years and years now. It's just yeah. it's just increased. Um, I don't think that it's uh, receded quite the same way in Canada. I don't think we have quite the same hostility towards labor movements, but uh, I don't believe anybody in Starbucks in, in Toronto is unionized. Um, it'll be interesting to see interesting to see if this does spread, because if it does, it's not going to stay at Starbucks. It's going to go to other similar franchise type uh, type stores. Yeah. And, you know, and the franchises fight uh, tooth and nail against unionization, you know, because it costs the money. And one of the greatest uh, threats to uh, to, you know, union unionization and uh, and decent wages just generally has been the new trend of companies like, uh, you know, virtual companies like, uh, like Uber and any of the delivery companies and, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, everything from Airbnb to, you know, all of these online entities that uh, make everybody an independent contractor. So, you know, if you're an independent contractor, you can't, you know, you can't be part of a union, you have to be an employee. So they've, they've structured, uh, you know, the, the new gig economy as a way of uh, putting all of the risks, all of the costs, um, and, and uh, none of the benefits on the, the people who would otherwise be employees, but in fact are independent contractors. So they can't, you know, some, they're starting to unionize. There's a couple of uh, uh, drives to unionize uh, you know, things like Uber drivers saying like, look, we, we really are not independent contractors. You want to pretend we are. I remember a very a couple of very dull lectures in, in law school about what constitutes an independent contractor, what it constitutes an employee. And, you know, there's a sort of a checklist for it. And more and more courts are saying, now this is your business model. It isn't a whole bunch of independent contractors. You're actually acting as an employee for them. You've tried to structure this uh, you, as an employer. You've tried to structure it so they're, they're not employees by making sure that they use their own tools of work and that they set their own hours and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you really control all the important parts that make them employees of yours. And therefore, they are entitled to certain benefits, certain safeguards, um, you know, if, you know, liability protection and, and a decent wage. Um, so you can't get out of minimum wage requirements, for example, by making somebody an independent contractor. We've also had, you know, the, you know before the uh, before the, the gig economy in the internet uh, world, uh, people uh, corporations were getting around it by making people part timers. If you did, you know, fewer hours, then they didn't have to pay benefits and a whole bunch of other stuff. I was uh, I was one of those people. That, yeah, I was uh, one of those people too. Yeah, I mean, I think as long as it, you didn't hit forty hours. As soon as you yeah, had 40 exactly. hours, you had to be considered a full-time employee with benefits. But if you worked 39 hours or 39 and a half hours, you're just under that uh, bar and you could continue to be a part-timer with, with no benefits, with no job security, with nothing. I mean, I, okay, I was a teenager. So uh, what more could I expect as a teenager? Um, but this now applies to people who are not teenagers. 
Yeah. And you know, oddly enough, you know, my, my first job experience was uh, working uh, for the Loblaws chain uh, you know, as, a, as a, a stock clerk and a buggy boy. And I, you know, I remember I had to join the union, <clears throat> even though I was working, I think, about 27 hours a week. You know, it was after school and uh, you know, all, day, all day Saturday. Um, and I remember I, you know, I had to become a member of the union, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure I had a lot of union protections. I, th I think I got a minimum wage, but, but that's even changed now because they now have you know, people, you know, they'll have three people doing the job that one person used to do. So people have to go out and find three different jobs just to make up for the lack of money that they would get for being a part-timer in one place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that's really driven wages down because there's a, an endless pool of unskilled or semi-skilled people who you can hire to do this, um, do all these kind of jobs, whether it's being a barista or being, a, you know, um, a wait staff or uh, someone who cleans up or stock shelves or, or, or any of those sorts of things, you know, there, it, it really is taking advantage of the marketplace, which is why during COVID, you know, every, you know, a lot of people said, we're tired of this. Um, this is a terrible way to make a living. I'm, I'm working myself to death on three different jobs. Uh, I, you know, my rent is going through the roof. I can't afford to pay this kind of stuff. So people, they quite happily took CERB and I don't blame them for doing that or any of the other uh, benefits that they could have received um, as a result of the pandemic. And they took that time to reflect and say, you know what, this is a crappy way <laughs> to, uh, to, to make a living. And employers all of a sudden are facing this kind of mini revolt of people realizing that they're being really taken advantage of by the gig economy and part-time economy and you know low wages and high demands. And they're all of a sudden saying, we're having trouble hiring people. Well, of course you're having trouble hiring people. You're offering crappy jobs at terrible money with rotten hours. No one wants to work like that. You're going to have to pay more money. Um, and, you know, and if, if you're not unionized, you know, it's supply and demand and, you know, the, with the, uh, the supply of labor drying up a little bit because they've got CERB to fall back on, or they had CERB to fall back on, a lot of employers are now starting to look and go like, maybe we should go back to offering a decent salary and full-time employment and some benefits to people because it gives us quality employees um, makes them happy, makes them productive, makes them show up for work. It's not just a stepping stone to, you know, it's just, it's a crappy job. I don't care if you fire me or not, because I can find another crappy job uh, quite easily. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah, but, you know, but unions, uh, you know, historically Starbucks has been around 50 years. Um, it's hard to believe it's been around 50 years. Yeah, I can't believe that either. But it's, uh, you know, it's managed to go this long without, having any of the people who wear the Starbucks uh, shirt and, and write your name on a cup um, being part of a union. And they've had to take whatever uh, wages are being offered and, 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 you know, and, and benefits if there are benefits at all. Be interesting to see if this spreads. You know, yeah, well, it, it, I think it, I think it might. I mean, it it, it does inspire people to uh, you know, it's like once, like you said, once the uh, the dam is broken, you know, the, you know there will be uh, you know Starbucks all over the place that uh, want to uh, follow the example, and you'll find a lot of Starbucks franchisees will probably just close up. Uh, you know, one of the things in the United States was their their loosey goosey labor laws is uh, you know you uh, you unionize in one franchise uh, location, and that franchisee just shuts down and opens up somewhere else yeah and uh, with non-union staff and just fires everybody and you know that that and that shouldn't happen but it does it happens all the time well the u.s is very much a union busting uh culture and we could get into why that is but that's a that's a talk for another day um what i would like to talk about before we go though is 
uh, you and I were talking, there's a couple of jurisdictions that are no longer covering medical expenses for pe people who are not vaccinated against COVID-19. Uh, you had uh, mentioned Singapore and Illinois. In Illinois, those two, two places with lots in common. Lots. <laughs> um, yeah, well, Illinois, uh, has, has, uh, which is a, a democratic state, a, a Democrat state, yeah. uh, you know, has a Democrat governor and a uh, Democrat-controlled uh, House of Representatives, um, has, uh, has introduced a bill that requires unvaccinated residents to pay for their own COVID care if they're unvaccinated by choice. Um, and I, I was looking it up and saying, well, well, what is, what is uh, um, the cost of uh, of COVID care? And it depends entirely oh, on, on your, you know, the level of illness that you mm -hmm. have. If you're in the ICU, uh, in an American uh, hospital, it can run well over a hundred thousand dollars, provided you survive, um, and didn't don't linger too long. But even in Canada, they say that the cost of, uh, of um, of healthcare under our system is fifty to sixty thousand dollars on average per COVID case that goes into the hospital. Um, that's a lot of money, and you know, in the United States, would certainly bankrupt a lot of people. Here, we don't pay for that, but uh, you know, they're they're getting tired of people walking away from the consequences of their really terrible decisions. I'm not sure this is the right one because I don't think anyone should be uh, denied medical care because they uh, they can't afford to pay it or or lose their house because of it, but. People are, you know, the, those of us who are vaccinated are getting pretty impatient with the you know, the small 10 to 15% of idiots out there who, in spite of all the evidence, all the experience are still refusing to get vaccinated. And then they get sick and fill up the hospitals. So other people can't get heart surgery, knee replacements, hip replacements, uh, dialysis, and all those other services that through no fault of theirs are now being denied because some idiot is, is hogging up a bed. I mean, this this is interesting because, you know, you for years hear arguments that we shouldn't cover the health care costs of smokers because they've made the choice, the conscious choice to put their health at risk. Why should the rest of us bear the financial burden of people who live recklessly? And that's never that that's a talking point. It never it never carries anywhere. There's never been any real movement to to implement that. And this is somewhat like that in the sense of, yeah, we're dealing with people who are medically irresponsible, uh, but do we, do we deny them care? Like, do you deny them, do you deny covering their medical expenses? And I don't know if this is a case of a lot of the people, this could just be an idea I get from seeing the Yahoo's uh, in, in stories online, but I get the sense that a lot of the people who are unvaccinated are probably amongst the less educated, um, possibly amongst, uh, largely amongst those who, who are not large, you know, big earners. Um, same way often that's the case with people who smoke cigarettes. Uh, so this is almost like a tax on, uh, you know, an extra tax on stupidity. Um, yeah, I think there's there's two distinct groups that have really developed in the anti-COVID, anti-vax movement. I mean, and one of them is, uh, you know, people who are um, not well educated, 
or are recent immigrants um, and you know, don't have facility with the language and don't really understand what's going on. And, you know, and that's why we see all these outreach programs through different uh, you know, multicultural groups that are, you know, we've got uh, you know, mosques who are doing uh, information sessions and we've got uh, newcomer services, uh, you know, reaching out to different, you know, whether it's the Somali community or you, know, you name whatever community you like, um, trying to explain to them that you know this is important and this is good and you know it doesn't it's not against anyone's religion um, and they try to educate and I think there's some hope for those people because a lot of that is just a communication education issue and they're open to the idea that once it's explained to me okay well now now I know it's important and, and it, it's a good thing I'll go and get it and I think there is some success with those the other group that's really emerged are the middle upper middle class group, you know, I call them the yoga moms, nothing against yoga, nothing against moms, but it really is that healthy body, natural Gwyneth Paltrow group of people out there who takes supplements all day long, or they're bodybuilders. I mean, how many bodybuilders have you seen who are, who are anti-vax because, you know, they, they, you know, they only put pure things in their body and they're yep, boosting their steroids. immunity. <laughs> you know, and, you know, well, you know, steroids and, and, and bulking up whey powder and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. But, uh, but they've got this, this philosophy uh, that is not based in any kind of science that, uh, you know, that their, their bodies, you know, won't, you know, they won't put any poison in their bodies is the way they put it. And, you know, those, you know, you look at the crowds who are you know, out there protesting, you know, a lot of them, they're really well-dressed. They're, they're certainly well-fed, they're well-coiffed and they are, you know, and they're protesting in front of schools in, in really nice neighborhoods. I mean, one of the most uh, surprising statistics pre-pandemic that I, I, I saw was there are alternative schools. And in Toronto, you know, the alternative schools are kind of the artsy, hippie. I mean, I, I went to an alternative high school for a couple of years myself. And, you know, they're kind of the 1960s model of, uh, of, of education. Yeah. And it's all about empowering children and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Um, and among, you know, if you go across all the public schools in Toronto, the, you know, the, the non-vaccinated rate, not COVID, but, you know, your chicken pox and measles, measles and all that mm -hmm, kind of stuff, mm -hmm. you know, runs between two and 5%, you know, which is possible. You know, you can say for religious reasons or regions of conscience, you're, you're not going to do that to your kids. When you go to the alternative schools, which tend to be white, upper you know, middle class, they tend to be sort of uh, private schools for people who don't want to pay the price of private schools. It's a, it's a really, you know, white urban, uh, 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 demographic the number of unvaccinated goes from two to five percent to twenty percent in alternative schools really? of, for, for your basic stuff for your you know your your your, your tri boosters and your chicken pox you know rubella and all that kind of stuff so there's this there is this layer that was there even before the pandemic of people who the, you know the refuseniks who uh were well educated had tons of money in the bank, lived in good neighborhoods and sent their kids to alternative schools. One in five refused to get their kids vaccinated before that. And I, I imagine most of the noise that we're hearing, I think pretty much all of the noise we're hearing um, is from these people. It's not from you know, the working class and the recent arrival because they're too busy trying to make a living. These are the people who've got the, the day off in the afternoon so they can go and pick it in front of uh, uh, the uh, Stephen Lecce's house. 
I guess they fall under the category of sometimes a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And yeah. uh, a lot of people think that uh, because they're well-to-do, that also means they're inordinately intelligent. Um, and that, no, no, it doesn't mean that. It means you've been very, very lucky. Yeah, uh, absolutely. In most cases. Um, it's interesting, though, that, that that statistic is so much higher in those uh, alternative schools. Well, these are people alternative. They think that the they are apart from the world anyway. Well, children, children of hippies is what they are. And uh, it's, uh, you know, people who, who know better and, you know, they, they, they go to, uh, you know, buy organic foods and take, uh, you know, take, take zinc and all kinds of, of, of strange, uh, you know, uh, green tea enemas and stuff. It's that kind of crowd. And that's not a crowd I hang with. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> Especially the green tea animal ones. So you don't want to be hanging around those guys. Well, <laughs> for certainly, all kinds not, of certainly not for long. You don't want them in your car for a long drive. <laughs> no, not with all the potholes in Toronto. That's for sure. <laughs> all right. Well, that's a good place for us to bring this in for a oh, landing. On a high point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Always classy. Someplace we can be proud. Uh, Stephen Lawton's can be found on Twitter at Stephen Lawton's. It's S T E P H E N L A U T E N S. And uh, you have a Facebook page too, correct? Sure, I do. But it's not funny at all. It's just, you know, pictures of me in front of the Christmas tree. Okay. Well, you know, those <laughs> unless are you find that funny, <laughs> those are heartwarming. Um, you can find me through my work at newmusicnation.ca. Um, Stephen, thank you. Always a pleasure. And uh, good luck uh, with your sneezing and your, your coughing and your runny <laughs> eyes every time you go by that Christmas tree. I'm, I, it's getting better. By the time we throw it out, I'm, I'm usually cured. And, you know, 11 months later, I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a holiday tradition. It is. Yeah. <laughs> Running right. of the noses. <laughs> All right. Uh, this has been Stephen and Stephen. I'm Stephen Kersner. Stephen Kersner.